Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Chizinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. Okay, my fact this week is that the Emperor of the Incas only ever wore an outfit once, after which it was immediately burned. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be that. Do you? Yeah. Why are you wearing the same jumper as you've worn for the last three weeks? No, I've worn 21 <laughs> different jumpers over the last three weeks. <laughs> so this was the, he was called Sapa Inca, and um, he wore clothes, special clothes that no one else was allowed to wear. Is there a theory as to why he couldn't wear them twice, or do we not know? We don't really know. Uh, I think it's just because he's so important, and it's an ostentatious show of wealth, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and his um, clothes were seen as divine because he was seen as divine. It is a bit like the Duchess of Cambridge, who, does she if, do she re- well, if she reuses an outfit, the newspapers say, oh, she's recycling her clothes, as opposed to only wearing everything once. Do you so, think they yeah. burn it after she uses them? Maybe. Maybe her, she, the ones she really like, she squirrels away so she can wear them again. <laughs> I don't know. Is that, how did they record their information, the Incas? Yeah, so that is uh, interesting. Unlike a lot of the Mesoamericans, uh, who we don't really have any information apart from like ceramics or, or cloths or textiles, we have a bit about the Incans because they did talk to the Spanish. They were the last Mesoamericans that were there before the Spanish wiped them out. Or oh, didn't okay. quite wipe them out, but basically a lot of them died. So we know what they did by what the Spanish said. Oh, Although it should be said that the Spanish did lie a lot. because <laughs> Yeah, why wouldn't you? They defeated exactly, them, right? Exactly, exactly. So maybe this is not true, but... Um, so the, when the Spanish came, actually, it was an extraordinary thing that happened, first of all. So it was 1532, and it was the conquistador Francisco Pizarro, and he turned up, and it was a surprise attack that he launched on the Inca. That, and... It sounds a bit like a surprise party when you put it like that, doesn't it? Surprise! Surprise! Have some smallpox. <laughs> yeah, have loads of murder. Um but he, he, according to the Spanish records, they killed 7,000 Inca without themselves having one single fatality. No. Which you can't believe would actually be true, but that is what was recorded. Um, but the amazing thing about this is that we can study exactly what happened and the influence of the Spanish by looking at this one glacier. So we've talked about this kind of thing before, but there's this glacier, which is 150 miles away from where Pizarro landed. It's called the Kelkaya Ice Cap. And it's the largest ice cap, in, ice cap in the tropics. And what it does is, because South America has wet and dry seasons, then a layer of dust forms every year in the dry season. And so we know exactly which year it is by looking down mm, in the ice cap. Like tree rings kind exactly of Exactly, like tree rings. And so they've studied this ice cap to see what the influence of the Spanish was. So the Spanish came and they started doing metallurgy. And so it's got lots more kind of mm. metallurgy deposits, various oh, different wow. types of metal deposits in it. When the revolution started, the independence revolution, suddenly a lot of mines were decomposed commissioned and so the pollution levels in it go down which show you that wow. and you can just drill straight through this ice cap and you've got this like year by year calendar another thing we can look at is um Lama Poo, mm. and that will tell us what happened with the incas um because basically their culture um moved around maize uh, which was the main crop a few other things like potatoes and stuff but maize is one of the main ones um maize pollen um comes in so you can look at that but at the same time you can find a lot of mites in the ground uh, dead mites uh, which feed on llama llama excrement and you can work out by the number of these mites uh, and the amount of maize pollen exactly how 
big and small the Incan Empire was. Oh, it was wow. kind of the super fuel, the llama dung, because you, you you know you need to farm more intensively. Mm. And there was a big switch uh, to maize um, about two thousand seven hundred years ago. And the the way they found it is so cool because they they studied. I didn't know this was a thing. They studied what's called mud cores in a lake. So it's like an ice core, you do, but it's made of mud. Um, yeah, and it was also, it was really easy for the Incas because llamas defecate uh, communally. You know, they have one toilet. Mm. Not that all llamas go to, but that, you know, <laughs> no, all the llamas... they live, it's a big country, <laughs> Peru. country, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and that was what made it possible to grow huge maize fields because it's much richer. They wouldn't have done it without um, that fertiliser. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, they were very into llamas, weren't they? They relied into on them llamas. massively. Didn't... Into llamas, into maize... Yeah. It's potatoes. <laughs> Not into the wheel. Needed the no. llamas because they didn't have wheels. Oh. So because they didn't have carts that could be pulled like massive long distances, they instead had this incredible system of chaskis. And probably not how you pronounce it, but who knows how Incas pronounce things. Um, and chaskis, um, chaskis were relay runners. So they were totally crucial to the whole Incan empire. They were exempt from things like farming and taxation because they were so important. And their whole job was to deliver messages and parcels and equipment through the empire. And so they would run a short space, like they'd run 10 kilometers and they'd pass a message on to the mm. next person. They had to memorize the entire message perfectly. So it was like Chinese whispers. Oh, if right. you're sending so something they weren't holding a message no because they... i was wondering if that's why our empire wasn't so big because we can never get a relay team that can get that on around the olympics <laughs> you just keep dropping it <laughs> so the inca obviously they were taken out and there are no longer any sappers but there is a descendant of a sapper inca or the inca emperor uh who is still in power to this day wow so it's a power. long descendant it's the last inca emperor called hayuana capec his descendant is the current president of chile Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a direct descendant. His name's Miguel Pinera, and he um, he's actually serving for the second time as president, which is a new rule. They've never allowed that before. And he's a billionaire, so he's still this super rich So he could afford character. to burn his clothes after he every time he wore them. Yeah. Wow. He's worth two billion pounds. Yeah. Um, wow. The last Inca Sapa was called, anyone? Ooh, don't know. It's Bob. also the name of a rapper. Uh, Tupac. Tupac, correct. You're kidding. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was called Tupac Amaru, uh, and he was killed by the Spanish. But then there was an insurgency in the 18th century, and another person um, who wasn't related at all called themselves Tupac after this guy. Mm. And then Tupac Shakur, his mother, I think, named him after um, this insurgent. Wow. Really? So that's cool. Very interesting. That's very cool. Um, the kings, they would go to the coronations of their descendants. So their mummies would be at the coronation <laughs> oh, really? because they oh, were right. really important still. And they were reminding the new king that he descended from a long line of kings. Mm. And also, they would stay powerful after they died because the royal family would visit the mummified kings and ask their advice about stuff. Mm. And then an oracle sitting next to them would... Uh... What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> a bit like Matthew Carbett and Sooty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What a show that would have been. <laughs> There's quite a few of the Incas because they've got documents of the lines of the names that are associated with those Sapa, and mm. quite a few of them are mythical. And then suddenly they just become uh, real. People mm. always do that. Yeah, don't it's they? like with yeah. Japanese emperors yeah. as well. Yeah. This is the problem with not writing stuff down because that's an oral history, isn't it? Or oh, they did have this system of uh, quipu or kipu, which is these um, rods that had lots of threads with knots tied mm. into them hanging yep. from them, which was some really complex language that we don't understand. So all we know is through oral history, which is always 
is going to be entangled, I suppose, with myth. Yeah. yeah. Do we still not know what those knots mean? We're getting close. Wow. Yeah. They've, That's so cool. We're yeah. getting close. Maybe in our lifetime. Maybe in the next five or ten years they'll work it out, we think. Possibly. Yeah. That's so cool. What are they missing? Are they missing like a not Rosetta Stone? Yes, they right. are. But they found one which is um, some record keeping where they it's in Spanish and also in Kipu and they think that they might have the names of some emperors now and they're get, getting pretty close. Very cool. Yeah. Do you know where Machu Picchu is twinned with? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I've been to Machu Picchu and it's at the top of a massive hill that's really hard to get to. Mm-hmm. So is it... Uh, Highgate. Oh, okay, nice. It is not though. It is the Yorkshire village of Hayworth. Is it? Oh. Yep, that's a wow. big, big deal. They had a ceremony in two thousand and five, and they've been with the great Incan city of Machu Picchu. And what is that? Do What's we the connection? Yeah. Do we know anything else about Hayworth? Yeah. Is Hiram Bingham from there? Uh, the Brontes were from there. Did they go? Okay. Oh. Were they explorers? Uh, they they have nothing to do with Machu Picchu. I was reading the ceremony. I think they just wanted to inspire an uh, interest in sort of Peruvian history in some school children. But I have no doubt Machu Picchu has no idea it's twinned with Hayward. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a sign as you enter Machu Picchu, James. It says twinned with Hayward. Now you've seen Machu Picchu. <laughs> Is it? Sorry. I th- thought Brontes were from Haworth, but is it not that? Oh, but is that how be- you pronounce it? Oh, I don't know, actually. Oh, is it H A W? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably Haworth. I don't know. Someone from Yorkshire, write in. <laughs> write in angrily. Everyone from Yorkshire. I don't think they've learned to write, have they? Oh, no, that's the Incas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's what connects them. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, dear, they are going to write in. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I've got, I, I don't know how we're doing for Inca stuff. I've got a fact about ritual burning. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 2017, Pakistan's Minister of Tourism, Fida Khan, was so annoyed about his flight being delayed that he took his clothes out of his luggage and started setting them on fire. <laughs> it's only going to delay the flight more, really, isn't it? Yeah. If you start a fire in the airport. Yeah. Unless they say, oh my God, there's a fire. Everyone get out of here. You, get on that plane. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's the quickest way out, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you find it weird that when you, you know when you see people wearing these amazing expensive clothes on the red carpet mm. and they don't own any of them? It's actually kind of like all these celebrities are, um, you know, when you are struggling financially, off early 20s, you sort of hire stuff and then you have to send it back. Otherwise, it accrues interest. Yeah. They're basically those people. They're poor early uh, 20s students or they're who going are hiring to, out a dress. They're going to Topshop and then getting it and then wearing it once and then taking it back mm. saying, yes. no, no, I never wore it. I never oh, wore it. Do you think yeah. the day after the Oscars is just a queue of Jennifer Lawrence, <laughs> Bradley Cooper? <laughs> and Topshop. Yeah, I go, oh, man. <laughs> they are really strict. It has to be within one to two days always. I was reading about... Um, just while we're on America and the sort of rich elite there, uh, Russell Westbrook, who is a basketball player, um, who you guys won't know, but in America, he's one of the biggest names in basketball. And he's very famous for his flashy outfits. And he is someone who has said, he said this on Ellen DeGeneres' show, he never wears the same clothes twice. But he says he doesn't waste them, he donates them, you know, he doesn't burn them, he donates them to Goodwill uh, charities. And as a result, he says when he walks through or he's in a car going through Oklahoma City, he just sees everyone wearing his clothes. It's just like, <laughs> Was everyone the same size in Oklahoma City? (laughs) As a basketball player. (laughs) You've just got loads of people with clothes like they've been given by their older brothers. (laughs) No one can pick anything up because their sleeves are too long. (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. I've changed the number on my fact, by the way, so don't freak out when I say it. My fact this week is that about 70%... What? <laughs> <laughs> I knew. 
so fucking predictable. <laughs> My fact this week is that about 70% of parents admit to having a favourite child. Uh, yeah, this they and they do have favourite children. I've got a favourite one. You've only got one. Yeah. It's not that. It's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is your favourite? I met this awesome kid at the playground <laughs> when Wilf and I were there. It's called Jeff. Wicked Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> right. So about seventy percent of parents are as bad as Dan is at parenting uh, and prefer certain kids. And this is I was going through a bunch of kind of studies that have been done over the years, as they often are into parenting, and that seems to be roughly the average. So there was a study in twenty sixteen that asked parents and seventy four percent of mothers and 70% of fathers admitted to having a favourite. That was in California. There was another one 10 years earlier where it was 70% of fathers but 65% of mothers. So it seems like mothers have really gone off their kids in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this keeps on coming up again and again. They, If it's an in-depth study, they will sort of reluctantly admit that they do have a favourite child and also studies that look at the behaviour of parents towards their children invariably find that they prefer certain children in the way they act. Is that right? So I, I just, I'm um, texting to my mum this morning mm. um, because I have three brothers and sisters and asked if she had a favourite oh, yeah. uh, and she didn't say she didn't say either way which suggests to me that she does and I'm not it <laughs> you have a one in four chance though that's something yeah I'm pretty sure I'm not even her favourite on this podcast <laughs> wait hang on are you the youngest I'm the eldest well that damages your chances because oh. there have been studies done finding that half of parents to conf- who confessed they had a favourite said that it was their last born right. and there's another theory about why it's the last born which is that uh, more than half of parents and grandparents said that the, the last born child made them laugh more so uh, there was well. an Australian news website which said, so if you aren't the favourite, you might just not be very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that was written by my mum. <laughs> yeah. But the good news is kids are really bad at knowing which one the favourite is. So it shouldn't make you feel too bad. Really? Yeah. They, again, in these studies, when they look at who the children think is the favourite and who the parents' favourite actually is, it's really often different. So there was a survey which was, it was only 30 older mothers and they were asked about their adult children and 80% of those mothers admitted to having a favourite and 80% of the children said their parents definitely had a favourite but almost all of them got the favourite wrong. Wow. So maybe parents are overcompensating. So in effect, it doesn't really matter if you're the favourite or not because if you are the favourite, you will be treated better but you won't know it and if you're not the favourite they'll make up for it by pretending to treat you better. So it doesn't matter if they don't really like you. Exactly. They're not going to show it. How blatant would a parent make it, though? What, the... As in, you wouldn't give one child loads of presents at Christmas and the other no presents. (laughs) It's not like Cinderella or Harry Potter or something. Um, Does your child cry much, Dan? No, not too much. Oh, really? Um, Because a lot of children do, I've read. And (laughs) (laughs) according to um, evolutionary biologist David Haig, this might be to stop their parents from procreating and having another baby, which kind of makes sense if you think about it evolutionary, doesn't it? Yeah, I wrote about this. This was they do it at night, particularly yeah. right. The idea of like late nurse feeding uh, <laughs> from the mum, so that if you were about to go, okay, let's let's get down, uh, your baby would stop you. Yeah, you and the idea is that the baby then gets more resources because it doesn't have to share it with brothers or brothers and sisters, which means in theory. They should do better in life, which means they should reproduce more and then... Wow. But doesn't also breastfeeding act as a contraceptive? So if you're exclusively breastfeeding as a woman, you tend not to have periods. Is that right? Meaning that you can't become pregnant. Right. So the more the child cries and wants breastfeeding, 
the less chance there is that another Ooh. child will be born. Wow. Perfect. So it's working double efforts. Yep. Yeah. Stopping the actual sex and then even if the actual <laughs> sex is happening, it's still not acting as a like a human contraceptive. Problem is it, it's obviously not working, is it? No. So these genius babies are failing. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing the best they can. Maybe in another million years they'll evolve to, you know, make chastity belts or something. <laughs> <laughs> One of you was saying that parents don't tend to just favour one kid with loads of presents, but there was one parent who literally did exactly that. So do you guys know about Evelyn War's dad? No. no. So Evelyn War had an older brother called Alec, and his dad absolutely loved Alec and absolutely hated Evelyn War. So all the way through their life, if Evelyn War wanted anything, his dad got it for his brother. So Evelyn asked for a bike, uh, his dad bought one for Alec instead. Alec once asked for a billiards table. And so Evelyn War had, was a child at the time he played in his nursery and the dad just dumped a billiards table in this room that he was supposed to play in. Um, he once said when Alec fathered his first son, then Evelyn War's dad said to the son, I've only ever loved three people in my life or only, I've, I've only ever had three great loves in my life. And my mother, my wife and your father. And that's wow. it. Poor old Evelyn. But Evelyn War was also mean to his children, wasn't he? Yes, like he we've, was. We've, we've done the banana story before, haven't we? <laughs> Which is that uh, there was lots of rationing in the war and Evelyn War had children and there was a special thing where bananas were distributed because they, they had not been easy to come by during the war. And so, uh, it, you know, you would get basically a banana per child. Mm. And Evelyn War sat his three children down in front of him and proceeded to eat all three bananas. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think with a knife and fork, he poured cream over them and just sat yeah, there eating the bananas. <laughs> yeah. So did he just hate them or... Uh, there must maybe he was teaching them some lesson that we can't quite comprehend at this well, amount of time. Yeah, it can't so, be how to eat a banana <laughs> no with a knife and fork. I have a test question for you guys. Yes. The company Kellogg's. Who's it named after? John Kellogg. John uh, Kellogg. John Kellogg. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh. So John Harvey Kellogg is the guy that we've talked about before. Yeah, he. Yeah. Uh, he was sort of an inventor. He thought everyone had to eat um, oats and stop masturbating, stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> was, again, only he's... two rules at Kellogg Academy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a famous one, I think, that people know yeah. about John Harvey hmm. Kellogg. Yeah. But Kellogg's Cornflakes and Kellogg's the Company was founded, invented, and named after his brother. And so he, John, so John Harvey Kellogg had a younger brother called Will, and John was this really flamboyant, really outgoing, charismatic Will guy. Masturbating <laughs> <laughs> and hated oats. <laughs> they were polar opposites. <laughs> they were opposites, although I don't know about their masturbation. So. Around the dinner table, one of them's got a big bowl of oats. <laughs> Not near my cereal. <laughs> anyway, if we get this back on track, it's actually quite a serious rivalry. Oh my god. Um, Will was opposite of John Harvey, not very flamboyant, like hardly said anything, super shy, was younger. He worked for his older brother for 25 years, so at that sanitarium that he founded, Battle Creek Spa, um, where he did like real dog's body stuff. John Harvey t uh, treated him really badly and made him do all the drudge work, uh, made him shine his shoes and stuff, never gave him an official job title, hardly paid him anything. And eventually, uh, Will turned around and thought, I'm, a, I'm the better businessman. I'm going to set up 
up Kellogg's company, invented some cornflakes, and he did it. So he set up this cornflake company in 1906, and it had a promotional campaign where the slogan was, wink at your grocer and see what you get. <laughs> That's a spelling mistake, isn't it? <laughs> And you've got a bowl of cornflakes. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that Robert Louis Stevenson died halfway through making a batch of mayonnaise. <laughs> it's, it's very sad. It's very know. sad because he was young, he was only 44. It is. It's so sad. It just makes me sad that also that batch of mayonnaise, I suppose, never got finished, presumably. Oh, that's the real tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Also, how long does it take to make mayonnaise? It takes me about two and a half minutes. Well, it was a very sudden death. Um, (laughs) No, I I think he was dropping the oil in drop Uh, by drop. It might have been a longer process. Food processor in those days. I don't think he did. No, (laughs) especially not in Samoa where he lived. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah, his um, just very quickly, you're saying mm. an early death. Um, people, when the news got relayed, because he was in Samoa, uh, back home, people were properly devastated. Mm. Famous authors like um, Henry James actually flat out denied that it was true. He just thought, wow. this can't be right. Um, and Rudyard Kipling said he was so upset he couldn't write for a month. He was just absolutely broken by wow. it. Um, yeah, so wow. he was a yeah. big, big character in his time. Yeah. Yeah. But about this mayonnaise. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Sorry. What am I? <laughs> you are supposed to add the oil slowly. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so yeah, that's what he was doing, and he yeah he just he took ill halfway through making the mayonnaise, and then he he sort of collapsed, and then he died. It was very very sad. He was um, a sickly being, wasn't he? He was so yeah. ill and yeah. weak all the way through his life. It's amazing he wrote as much as he did. And yeah. yeah. Well, the idea was that some people said he wrote quicker than anyone else because he knew he'd had these hemorrhages and he'd been sick. And so because he knew his life would be short, he felt like he had to just get get as much out as possible. That's interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, just back to mayonnaise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dan, will you stop going on about mayonnaise? Um, well, I was just looking into, because he was in Samoa and hmm. he was eating mayonnaise and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's, do they eat mayonnaise in Samoa? Turns out they love it, do they? Yeah. I, I found a Facebook page called Samoan Quotes and Sayings. And um, there's, there's one quote, which is, if you eat everything with mayo, you might be a Samoan. Hashtag Samoan habits. Wow. And yeah, apparently it's it's a very, very loved uh, source there. Really? Yeah, anyway, back to Stevenson. Um, so Robert Louis, when he was in Samoa, one thing that Robert Louis Stevenson did, which is very sweet, was that he gave his birthday to a child. Mm. He was born on the 13th of November and he bumped into a little girl who was called Annie Ide, a daughter of a friend of his, and she was born on Christmas Day. And so she said, oh, I, I never get a proper fuss made of me on Christmas Day. So he drew up a proper legal document, well, a kind of pseudo-legal document, in which he said, I bequeath you my birthday. That's cool. So yeah. was she one year older than she thought she was at the end? Oh, I don't know. I don't well, know if half she a year older, right? aged herself well, no, he, up. Because he was born on the 13th of November, so it's not... Too much oh, better. So just a month. Yeah, you're still yeah. in that category of birthday present, Christmas present, annoyance. I would yeah. Say. So I was reading. He wrote such a sweet letter to her, and he put it all in legalese because he trained to be a lawyer. And so it started out saying, "I trust this will prove sufficient in law," and ex- you know, explain why he was doing. It. He said, "I've attained an age where we never mention our age anymore because it's so old. So I have no further use for my birthday." But I remember discussing this before, and it being in November. But at the end of this letter, it said his birthday was the 19th of June. Ooh. Oh, he gave a fake birthday. 
Has he given her a fake birthday? I guess so, because actually, maybe he was thoughtful. Yeah. And he yeah. thought, well, actually, that November date's no good. I'm going to pretend it's June. Because, I mean, yeah. it's all pretend. It's all made up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Birthdays aren't made up. No, Birthdays are real. Legal. This legal <laughs> thing, right? Um, but lots of his interactions were with... Um, lots of his significant interactions were with children. So, supposedly, he only started writing Treasure Island when he met a small boy who repeatedly asked him why he didn't write something interesting like Robinson Crusoe. Wow. I think he was already an interesting writer. I, like, I like his stuff. But... Uh, yeah. You're saying yeah. you don't agree with that little child? No. You think his previous stuff I think was... I think a child was a fool. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think that was... I mean, that's what's made him in the end, isn't it? That's the main thing that everyone knows him for. It is, but there is one claim that he invented the sleeping bag. Oh, yeah. Now... Jesus. So that should be the biggie. That should, well, I don't, I don't think he did invent the sleeping bag, but he commissioned one of the very early sleeping bags or invented a kind of prototype version of it because he was travelling solo through the Cévennes Mountains in France with only a donkey. And that was research for his book, Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes. An imaginative title. The, yeah. <laughs> he got better at those. Uh, and uh, the donkey was called Modestine. And he was really rude about the donkey. He said, oh, yeah, the donkey held me up. I would have done it faster if it hadn't been for this donkey, which was carrying all my stuff in my sleeping bag. (laughs) When Robert Louis Stevenson um, had a birthday in Samoa, he was very popular there. Uh, They celebrated by consuming 804 pineapples. Sorry, can I interject here? Yeah. What the fuck was he doing celebrating his birthday in Samoa when he's given it away to a girl? Some girl on the side going, oh, excuse me. <laughs> Put That's those really pineapples away. That was his 400th birthday, so it must have been <gasps> wow. after that. Yeah. Terrible behaviour. 800 pineapples. That's amazing. That's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, I don't know how many people there were enjoying those pineapples. There might have been 900 people and 100 people went hungry. (laughs) (laughs) His uh, wife was called Fanny Vandergrift Osborne. (laughs) Isn't that a great name? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the early women he fell in love with was called called Fanny Sitwell. He had a type, didn't he? He had a thing about... Fanny's. He he loved Fanny's. (laughs) Their story was quite... Sweet, actually. She was uh, married to this guy in America and he sent her to get their kids educated in Paris and that was where she fell in love with Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm. And so she popped off back to New York, got a divorce from this husband of hers and said, I've fallen in love with someone else. And then her and Stevenson got married straight away and her ex-husband came to the wedding. Did With he? his new girlfriend. Did he? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is quite Very close. mature, yeah. I think. Very mature. Um, just We've been talking Treasure Island, but the other big, big work outside of Travels With My Donkey uh, <laughs> is, of course, Jekyll and Hyde. Um, mm. And that's, that's really interesting, Jekyll and Hyde. He wrote a first version of the book and um, hated it, absolutely hated it, so threw it in the fire and burns it and then he rewrote the whole book in the space of I think a weekend it was like 30 hours that he sat and and he managed to to bring it out he was quite bad at spelling that was noticed in the drafts of that Um, but Jekyll and Hyde there's a few interesting facts about it Uh, the first one is we're all saying it wrong it's G kill G kill (laughs) if you were pronouncing it pronouncing it it's J E E and then kill G-kill. Yeah. Is that what he said? Did he yeah, put the pronunciation said, guide in the back? He did. He for said the audio that, book. He said that in an interview. He said, let the name be pre- pronounced as it is spelt G-kill, not Jekyll. It's not spelt G-kill. He's a bad speller. We've already established. <laughs> but it sounds quite Scottish, doesn't it? Because he was Scottish. Yes, you know, yeah. G-kill. G-kill. And do we know how to pronounce Hyde? Um, he'd. <laughs> no, I think it's probably Hyde. Um, he did lead quite... Uh, 
Robert Louis Stevenson did lead a kind of almost Jekyll and Hyde life in some ways. So first of all, he created an alternative character for himself. And this was when he was in Edinburgh and he loved doing really absurd things for the sake of it. And him and his cousin would play pranks on everyone and they called them Jinx. And mm. he uh, created this character called John Libel, who sort of haunted Edinburgh in all these different ways. And so, for instance, he had hundreds or thousands of calling cards for John Libel printed off. And he went around Edinburgh handing them around to everyone, saying, you must get in touch with this person. Oh, God, that or- sounds very familiar from the Edinburgh Festival, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in the voodoo rooms at 3pm every day. Um, he used to go into hotels or boarding houses all over the city and say, has John Libble arrived yet? And they'd say, no, he hasn't. And he'd say, oh, he will. <laughs> and so word, word got around, like, who's this guy? Um, he'd, drop him, he'd drop into conversation that he was an agent looking for the person who was going to inherit the Libble fortune. He tried to get an ad in the Scotsman. He just created this guy that everyone was talking wow, about. That's no really oh, It does sound like a good way to get noticed at Edinburgh, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not about it. The month before, yeah. just going to hotels. Is Andrew Hunter yeah. here yet? <laughs> no. no, he will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that in the 1960s, NASA helped to fund a scientific project that aimed to teach dolphins to speak the English language so perfectly that they would be given a chair at the United Nations to speak on behalf of marine mammals. Obviously, they wouldn't fit in a chair. You'd have to have some kind of tank set up. That's true. Imagine a dolphin flopping around in a chair. <laughs> UN think tank. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, did it work? Uh, It did not work, but the premise of it was quite interesting. It was a guy called Dr. John Lilly, and he had the idea, along with his wife, that dolphins were talking through their blowholes in a sort of specific noise that suggested that perhaps that could be manipulated into human language. And if they could train these dolphins to talk, that they would be able to get cross-species communication going. Now, the reason NASA got involved is because NASA thought, Let's see where this goes. If they get anywhere with this, this could be useful in the future should we ever make alien contact. The idea of learning some fundamental basics about and communication. That kind of makes sense, right? Because we don't know that aliens will have the same kind of language as us. Yeah. They could have the same kind of kind of language as any animal. So you would learn mm. that. Yeah, so this was set up in the 1960s. And when this funding was given, NASA um, allowed, through its funding, to let John Lilly set up this kind of um, really bizarre laboratory where they flooded an entire room with water so that a dolphin called Peter could live in there with this lady who uh, was going to sit there for months and months on end. She had a mattress in the room. She had a desk that she could work at. Was the mattress wet? Like, and the, was it underwater, the mattress? No, she had, like, a platform. She wasn't underwater oh, herself, cut, yeah. Sorry, yeah. She, she was, it was her who was the instigator, really, of making the experiment that to that, of making the experiment so extensive. That was Margaret Lovett, right? right who yeah. visited, and she loved dolphins already. She visited this place, and she totally fell in love with these three dolphins that were there. And the lab at the time was just one tank, and she said, I want to see the dolphin living in this, ho- in this full lab as if it's its own house. So she insisted it was all flooded. And then she said, I want to stay with it 24-7 so she can really get to understand how it works so she could help with this experiment. And yeah, then she erected these hanging platforms so she could sit hanging from her swing desk. It's very shape of water, isn't it? Mm. It is very shape of water. um, Those platforms aren't the only thing she erected. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Well, anyway, Peter was a young male dolphin and and needed and was... and uh, I think fancied her. 
basically. Mm, he did. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think um, quite famously dolphins do uh, tend to have a bit of a hump, don't they, when you go swimming with them? You hear a lot of stories of celebrities. I must say, I went swimming with dolphins once and I attracted no attention whatsoever from <laughs> oh, the dolphins. God. God, not a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's only celebrities. Celebrities. They insist on seeing your Instagram followers before they... <laughs> Maybe they're whispering to the dolphins, seriously, it's a very successful podcast. <laughs> They all have a higher bar than that. <laughs> um, Margaret used to do... It's, it's interesting looking at the techniques that they tried to um, teach the dolphins with. One of the techniques I thought was interesting was um, she painted her face white. She put a white paint all over her face and then she used black lipstick. And the idea was she wanted the dolphins to look directly at her lips to see the, the way she was mouthing oh, words. So it's sort of right. to distract oh. every other bit of her face from being the but attention. Was, they wanted the dolphin... I couldn't believe that the dolphins were speaking through their blowholes because I instinctively think of dolphin chatter as coming from yeah. their mouths. Yeah, yeah. And it, she said that the one thing she wanted him to say, Peter the dolphin to say was her name, he wanted her to say hello Margaret and she said that it's very difficult to get a dolphin to make an M sound with its blowhole and eventually he rolled over and kind of bubbled it through the water but the dolphins could imitate humans, we should say that they were able to imitate you know, the pitch mm. of her voice and mm-hmm. maybe even the frequency too I think, so there was some progress but not no. a lot, not enough, not enough. yeah and then it got a bit dodgy when he, this is John Lilly, um, who set up the whole thing, as we said before, started experimenting with LSD. He thought that the drugs would actually help the dolphins in order to understand language better and communicate better, open their minds up maybe. Um, so he started injecting them with LSD to try Ooh. get that going. Mm. Is that right? It was injections? Yeah, she, yeah. she wouldn't let him inject Peter, but she couldn't stop him injecting the other two. But it didn't really affect them, did it? Dolphins don't really... Well, I guess we don't know what visions they're seeing because no. they still <laughs> they can't speak. Them to talk. Everything they could see had an M in it, so they just couldn't say it. He was just seeing M and M's everywhere, but he just couldn't say it. <laughs> but then he got too into LSD, didn't he, and ran away to experiment yeah. more with that. And yeah, so the, the project got abandoned and so on. So yeah. there is no marine mammal chair at the United Nations as a result. <laughs> and then he did go into drugs. Oh, he decided that he would take a lot of ketamine and go into sensory deprivation tanks, which is a bit stupid because they're just full of water. Uh, and so on quite a few occasions, his wife had to save him from drowning. And at one stage, um, he said, one evening I took 150 milligrams of ketamine and suddenly the Earth Coincident Control Office, who were some aliens that he believed in, removed my penis and handed it to me. I screamed in terror. My wife, Tony, came running in from the bedroom and she said, it's still attached. So I shouted at the ceiling, who's in charge up there? A bunch of crazy kids? I did not get to that bit of the story. <laughs> he sounds like a reliable man to be doing wow. science. So, yeah. Oh, okay. I wonder how many times your husband would have to take loads of ketamine and get into a tank of water before you didn't save him. I think on the fifth or sixth time. Or sixth. I well, especially if he hasn't got it. a penis anymore. <laughs> What's the point? No, no willy lily, they called him. <laughs> Um, we are talking to dolphins now <laughs> better we? than they used to. Yeah, so we've got this thing called a chat, which is a cetacean hearing and telemetry device. And it's just been invented. It's about the same size as a toaster. You wear it on your chest. <laughs> and, and all animals it, tell you you look like a twat. 
Um, <laughs> no, they worked out how to translate. So you can teach dolphins to recognize certain words. They're clever. So you teach them to recognize the human word for seaweed. And mm. then they make their own sound for that seaweed. So you know what. So this machine could work out what the dolphin sound for seaweed is. And then it can translate that back to a human. So they have got dolphins now to say the word seaweed into this that machine. That is pretty good. And actually, oh. if you think about it, at the UN, they don't all speak English, do they? No, they, they exactly. speak all sorts of different languages, and it gets translated. Yeah, so you buy a toaster could, thing on your chest. You, <laughs> but you could theoretically have a dolphin at the UN. Just, I mean, all he can say is seaweed at the moment. You would, you, you would shove one of those earpieces in its blowhole, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it would have to breathe sometimes, and then, well, you would have to take turns to breathe and yeah. speak and listen. Okay. Hmm. Which you should do in life, anyway. Um, so I don't think we've mentioned before Peter Gabriel's project. From Genesis. Peter Gabriel from Genesis is working on an interspecies internet. What? <laughs> it's oh, this really cool project. <laughs> he's been doing it for a while. It happened because he's, so he's a musician and he sort of played music with some <laughs> apes. And he thought, these guys are really getting me. And he called this scientist... <laughs> Called this scientist called Neil Gershenfeld, who runs, I really like his job, he runs MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms. And <laughs> this guy, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> None um, of this sounds real. <laughs> <laughs> These are legit people. A woman called Diana Rice, who's a cognitive psychologist and uh, one of the founders of the internet, Vince Cerf, or Kerf, who I think works, worked at um, uh, yeah. Apple. It's a difficult second invention, isn't it? After you've invented the internet and then you go, <laughs> now I'm going to invent an internet for monkeys. <laughs> is, it for, next is it for all animals to talk to each other? Yes. So you can get a wasp talking to a rhino. Exactly. The inter- they would have nothing to say to each other, would they? They, they don't might... have anything in common. What are you talking about? They can all bitch about humans. Oh, that yeah. Bloody cool. humans swatted my mate today. But... Yeah, well, they took off my nose. So. <laughs> but the, kind of the user interface is going to be really hard. Yeah. Because you're going to well, need... they use a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, uh, just stuff on the UN. I didn't realise this, but I think maybe it's quite well known that the UN, the idea of the UN was conceived by Churchill and Roosevelt when Churchill was naked, as so many things were conceived. I think we talked about his penchant for nakedness. Probably. Uh, so this is from Daisy Suckley, who was a confidant of Roosevelt. Who uh, it was when it was when America had been sucked into the war, and they decided that they had to have a united front against fascism, and they wanted to know what to call it. And FDR was lying in bed, going to sleep, and suddenly <laughs> Churchill bursts in. But no, no, he didn't notice the other way around. FDR thought. United Nations and so the moment he woke up the next morning he jumped out of bed and then he actually had some breakfast and then (laughs) and then he went up to Churchill's bedroom and knocked on the door and Churchill said come in and Churchill emerged from the bathroom butt naked and uh, apparently appeared like a pink cherub FDR described him as (laughs) FDR pointed at him and exploded the United Nations (laughs) I think if I was Churchill after he came in pointed at me naked and said the United Nations that would be the nickname for my genitals (laughs) I can get you a seat on the United Nations if you like (laughs) 
Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the stuff we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Jasinski. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or go to our group Twitter account, at No Such Thing, or you can go to nosuchthingasafish.com, where we have everything from tickets to our upcoming live UK tour and Ireland. And you can also listen to all of our previous episodes. Okay, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.